So tonight, we get to decide whether religion and science are compatible. No, I'm not going to offer you any spoilers right at the beginning here. <laughs> but I will say that this is part of a larger question of whether faith and reason are compatible. And that question's been going on for quite some time. Down through the centuries, some have found ways to harmonize these two, and others have seen only irreconcilable conflict. You could say that Socrates was an, an early victim of this conflict, this Greek philosopher, apostle of reason. If you know his story, he was condemned by the Athenian court for, among other things, impiety with respect to Greek religion. There's another Greek philosopher, Aristotle, who found a way to harmonize his philosophy with the religion of his time. He offered a philosophical proof that there must be a first principle of all things, which he called the unmoved mover. You may know that St. Thomas Aquinas incorporated that proof into his own ways of showing that God exists in his Summa Theologica. But Aristotle went on to say that this first principle, this philosophical truth, could be found in religion, though there he thought it was expressed in a kind of mythical form in the Greek religion of the time, the gods and goddesses and so on. In the early centuries of the church, Christian believers uh, did not see reason, as found in Greek philosophy, to be opposed to faith. Rather, they borrowed concepts from the philosophy to express the truth of their faith. So at the Council of Nicaea in 325, they engaged philosophical notions like person and essence to explain their belief in the Trinity, in the one God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, proclaiming, in philosophical terms, that God is one essence but three persons. And I think Greek philosophy provided a kind of powerful tool for explaining the faith. But not everyone at the time was happy with that marriage of faith and reason. There's one father of the church, Tertullian, who was particularly displeased. He wrote, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem? Athens was the famous city for the Greek philosophers. Jerusalem, of course, the city of faith. So what has one to do with the other? He continues, tell me what is the sense of this itch for idle speculation? What does it prove, this useless affectation of a fastidious curiosity? It was highly appropriate that Thales, the first Greek philosopher, while his eyes were roaming the heavens in astronomical observation, should have tumbled into a well. This mishap may well serve to illustrate the fate of all who occupy themselves with the stupidities of philosophy. So, sorry, philosophy majors. <laughs> Centuries later, a medieval Franciscan, Jacoponi de Toda, shared the same sentiment when he lamented that Paris has destroyed Assisi. So Paris, the university city, Assisi, the city of St. Francis, one has destroyed the other. And in a kind of a whimsical verse, he made it clear what side of the faith-reason debate he was on. He wrote, Plato and Socrates may contend, and all the breath in their bodies spend, arguing without an end. But what's it all to me? 
Only a pure and simple mind, straight to heaven its way doth find, greets the king, while far behind lags the world's philosophy. Some centuries later, as reason seemed to gain ascendancy over faith in the Enlightenment, Auguste Comte saw the replacement of faith by reason as part of the process of human evolution from the theological stage of society, where humans invent gods and priests are the rulers, to the metaphysical stage where the intellect deifies itself and the sense of social responsibility declines, he thought, to finally the positive stage where positive sciences, empirical sciences, provide certainties which again make the order possible and inspire moral regeneration. So in our time, the question of the relation between faith and reason continues. Today, scientists are often seen as the representatives of reason, but they differ widely among themselves about the relationship between faith and reason. Some, like the biophysicist Hans Bremermann, maintain that it's mutually beneficial to science and religion to keep them separate. He writes, by and large, science and religion don't mix. When theologians and church authorities issue dogmas on scientific phenomena, great harm can be done to both theology and science. Conversely, good scientists often make poor theologians. Others see the gap as narrowing. The physicist Henry Marginal points to the religious interest of modern scientists as an indication of this. He writes, there's a widespread view that regards science and religion in general as incompatible. Let me therefore point out that this belief may have been true half a century ago, but has now lost its validity, as may be seen by anyone who reads the philosophical writings of the most distinguished and creative physicists of the last five decades. I am referring here to men like Einstein, Bohr, Heisenberg, Schrodinger, Dirac, Wigner, and many others. Arno Penzias, one of the discoverers of background radiation left over from the Big Bang, thinks that the very discoveries of science lead closer to religion. He writes, Astronomy leads us to a unique event, a universe which was created out of nothing, one with the very delicate balance needed to provide exactly the conditions required to permit life and one which has an underlying, one might say, supernatural plan. Thus, the observations of modern science seem to lead to the same conclusions as centuries-old religious intuition. So tonight, we consider the relationship between religion and science, or faith and reason, and we could begin with a very simple question. What do you know? kind of a throwaway question. People use it when they come across something new or surprising or sometimes not so surprising. As a statement like, Washington DC is in chaos again, might be met with a brief response like, well, what do you know? <laughs> this evening, we want to take the question more seriously. We, as we reflect on faith and reason, we ask not just what do you know, but also what do you believe? 
and how, that you, how do you know that you know what you know? Good question for a philosopher, epistemologist. And why do you believe what you believe? What's the difference between what you know and what you believe? We've all got lots of stuff in our heads, I think. Some things we know, we think we do, and some things we believe. If you're going to make a list of all the things you know and another one of all the list things you believe, what things would go in which list? And which list would be longer? There's some things we believe that we could never possibly know, at least not in this life. We might think of the creed that we say on Sunday mornings, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty. I believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, incarnate of the Virgin Mary, who suffered death and rose again. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. These are truths that lie beyond our knowledge. There are lots of other things that we believe, though, that other people know. For instance, maybe you hear a radio report about record low temperatures in the Midwest these days. Is that something you know or something you believe? I suppose unless you jumped on a plane or hopped on your dog sled maybe, <laughs> went back there and looked around, uh, it's probably something you believe. You simply trust the weather reporter. Or maybe you've heard of Einstein's formula that E equals MC squared. Now, if you've studied physics, you may have, you may know that for sure. You've done the math, seen the evidence, you know why the formula is true. But if you happen to be an English major, it's probably something that you take on faith. Someone told you it's true and you trust them. At least that's what I do as a philosophy major. <laughs> then there may be some things that you used to know, but now you believe. For instance, you may by now have forgotten all of your high school geometry. <laughs> it happens. So maybe you once knew why the square on the hypotenuse is equal to the sum of the, other, the squares of the other two sides, but for now, it's something you take on faith. My guess is that for each of us, the list of things we believe is a lot longer than the list of things we know. On a practical level, we seem to get along just fine every day, believing some things and knowing others. In fact, we probably wouldn't last very long if we didn't believe in some things that are beyond our personal knowledge and experience. Like, well, maybe you're just sort of willing to believe that toadstools are poisonous without having to test it out for yourself. So, why do we so often hear that there's a conflict between belief and knowledge, or faith and reason, or science and religion? News of the conflict isn't very hard to find. For instance, almost every day you can find some article in some newspaper somewhere about a conflict between Christian faith in creation and the science of evolution. The well-known German theologian Wolfhard Pannenberg writes that the moral authority of the churches and their theologies has been seriously weakened because the underlying religious interpretation of reality is no longer taken as universally valid, but as a matter of private 
preference, if not simply superstition. This situation, he continues, has been brought about not primarily, perhaps, but in a large, to a large extent by what has been called the warfare between science and theology. You probably heard of the new atheists like Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, who insist that there is an inevitable conflict between science and religion. Yet a recent book by Jonathan Sachs, the chief rabbi of the United Kingdom, calls it the Great Partnership, debunks that idea, making a persuasive case that the bloody rhetorical war between science and religion is not just unnecessary, it is foolish. It's foolish to think that faith conflicts with reason because faith itself is reasonable. It's reasonable for us to believe the weather report, even if we don't know the weather situation ourselves. Our belief is reasonable since our trust in the one who's reporting the weather is reasonable. On a deeper level, our faith in God is also reasonable, even though it involves truths that lie forever beyond the grasp of reason. If it's reasonable to trust the weathermen, it's even more reasonable to trust God when God reveals the truth to us in Christ. As Jesus says, For this I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. And also says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Since truth is one, and God is the ultimate source of all truth, there can be no real conflict between the truth that God reveals and the truth that we discover through science using the gift of reason that God has given us. Today, a growing number of scientists and theologians seem eager to overcome apparent conflicts between science and religion through dialogue. This is especially the work of the Center for Theology and the Natural Sciences, the CTNS at the Graduate Theological Union, the GTU, where I teach at the Dominican School of Philosophy and Theology, the DSPT. Teaching at GTU and DSPT is often like swimming through alphabet soup. <laughs> One CTNS member, Ian Barber, has mapped out four possible ways to characterize the relation between science and religion in his book, Religion in an Age of Science. These are conflict, independence, dialogue, and integration, which you see on the handout there. So, conflict. We've already seen some thinkers who are convinced that the conflict between faith and reason is inevitable. When conflict is inevitable, the tendency is to choose sides. We saw how Tertullian and Jacoponi de Toto chose faith at the expense of reason. Today, some people do the same. Biblical fundamentalists, for instance, cling to literal interpretations of scripture and deny the findings of science. But if believers can become entrenched, so can scientists. Carl Sagan, for instance, famously proclaimed that the material cosmos is all there is or ever was or ever will be. The psychologist Sigmund Freud diagnosed religion as a collective neurosis, a stumbling block to true mental health and personal integration. The philosopher Karl Marx preached dialectical materialism 
and saw religion as a kind of opiate of the people. Of course, the teaching that matter alone is real is not itself a teaching of science. It's not a conclusion of science. It's a kind of premise or presupposition of the ideology that we might call not science, but scientism. And scientism arbitrarily decides that reality must be limited to quantifiable things that are able to be studied in science. The trouble with this conflict approach is that it assumes, for no apparent reason, that faith and reason are irreconcilable. Another option is independence. There are some thinkers who see science and religion as so independent, so detached from each other, that there cannot be any conflict between them. Far from being inevitable, uh, conflict is simply impossible. To them, faith and reason belong to two different realms which can never come into conflict since they really have nothing to do with each other. Just as giraffes never battle with sea slugs, so religion never needs to fight with, or reason never needs to fight with faith since they belong to different worlds. Reason is said, for instance, to belong to the objective world of fact, while faith belongs to the subjective world of meaning. This was the approach of the theologian Rudolf Bultmann. Whenever religion or scripture appeared to use objective-sounding language, for instance, as describing the parting of the Red Sea, the creation of the world as a literal event, he taught that this was a mere mythological language that had to be translated, that is to say, demythologized, into subjective statements about our human hopes and fears and experiences and feelings. So, for instance, the statement that God created the world really means only that we feel a sense of dependence on God. Faith could never make an objective statement of fact since it belongs to the subjective realm of meaning. Faith and reason are each valid in their own realm, but they really have nothing to do with each other. The problem with this approach is that we don't live in two worlds. We live in one world. We are both, each of us, all of us, are both believers and knowers. As believers, we have to make factual statements sometimes in order to profess our faith, as in the fundamental scriptural assertion that they crucified Jesus on the cross. As knowers, we discover not only data, but we find that data has meaning and significance for us. So the two go together. Third option, dialogue. The relationship between faith and reason is perhaps better characterized as dialogue or integration. Dialogue, as Ian Barber describes it, uh, allows for certain points of contact between reason and faith, in view of which they can talk to each other. The church has actively fostered this dialogue in establishing, for instance, the Pontifical Academy of the Sciences in 1936, and also the Vatican Observatory, which can trace its roots back to 1789 or perhaps farther, and which 
operates the Vatican Advanced Technology Telescope here in Arizona. Integration is a fourth possibility beyond dialogue. Since faith and reason use the same language to describe the same world, they have to overlap. And so the conclusions of one may have consequences for the other. So, for example, when Isaac Newton and William Paley saw scientific evidence for design in nature, they considered it legitimate to use that evidence to prove the existence of God. And when the Big Bang Theory offered scientific evidence that the universe had a beginning, Pope Pius XII thought it appropriate to point out the consonants between this scientific theory and the Christian doctrine of creation. Conversely, as evidence mounted in favor of the theory of biological evolution, it seemed appropriate to reconsider some of our traditional interpretations of the creation story in Genesis. So the integration of faith and reason presents us with the challenge of determining when the tenets of faith should be modified in accordance with the findings of reason and when reason should be directed by faith. The issue of when and whether faith should be modified by science has had quite a practical implication regarding the question of divine action, of whether and how we can understand God's action in the world. Before the advent of modern science in the philosophy of Thomas Aquinas and Aristotle, there was a rich understanding of causality. Causality involved four fundamental different kinds of causes, and using those causes one could account for, at least try to explain, to grasp at a deep philosophical level what was happening in the world. With Newton, that account got reduced for various reasons to simply material cause or matter or stuff, and efficient cause, which he understood as force. So if God was to act in the world, he would have to exert some force and move some stuff around. But the laws of Newtonian science explained all the movements of all the stuff and all the forces that acted on it. So there was literally no room for God to do anything in the world. This is really why Bultmann did his demythologizing and explain the statements about God's action in the world, from the parting of the Red Sea to the changing of water into wine, as subjective expressions of human feelings. God really didn't do anything in the world because he couldn't do anything. We just talk about God doing things to express our feelings about God. Fortunately, things have opened up with contemporary science. Quantum physics no longer sees just stuff and determinate forces, but finds an indeterminacy built into the structure of nature itself. Biology talks about organisms acting as wholes in ways that mere stuff and forces can't account for. So a biology of emergence becomes more widespread. Cosmology introduces an anthropic principle suggesting that humans, as a sort of goal of cosmic processes, must be considered in our understanding of those processes. With this richer understanding of causality, 
there's room for a new discussion of God's action in the world. The upshot is that God's action in the world is not ruled out by the scientific account of nature, but that the scientific account leaves room for and even invites a consideration of God's action in the world. At least that's kind of the argument of the book that I wrote that you see there at the foot of the page. St. Thomas Aquinas on apparent conflicts between science and religion. What should we do when we find an apparent conflict between faith and reason? Should reason give way to faith or faith give way to reason? It's a difficult question. For some guidance, I suggest we turn to that master of difficult questions. Guess who? Thomas Aquinas. Aquinas has already answered to the question of whether faith or philosophy should take precedence when there's an apparent conflict between them. We might call it his little old lady argument. After pointing out the different opinions of ancient philosophers on whether or not the human soul is immortal, he asks, but what little old lady, Betula in Latin, is there today who does not know that the soul is immortal? Faith can do much more than philosophy. So if philosophy is contrary to faith, it is not to be accepted. So faith trumps philosophy. Faith trumps reason. But sometimes the quick and ready answer isn't adequate. So Aquinas goes into greater detail in his Summa Theologica when he discusses how to interpret the passage of scripture that asserts that there are waters above the heavens. You remember this is Genesis 1-7. In the creation story, God separated the waters below the heavens from the waters above the heavens. How can there be waters above the heavens? Well, Aquinas first points out that we should not doubt that the waters are there since scripture says they are, but we need to decide what exactly those waters are. We need to interpret the scripture. Aquinas knows from the science of his day that physical water cannot exist above the firmament out in the heavens beyond the sphere of the moon in his cosmology since the heavenly bodies are not composed of the four elements of earth, air, fire, and water. It's physically impossible for water to exist out there. He points out that a primitive philosophy, such as Thales, early Greek philosopher, the one who fell into the well, you remember, it might have been able to show that there are waters above and below the heavens, since in that philosophy the whole cosmos is nothing but water in one form or another. That was Thales' philosophy, all is water. In the philosophy and science of his own time, though, uh, in Aquinas' time, the idea of water literally existing above the firmament could be shown, he thought, to be false for solid reasons, and so could not be held to be the authentic sense of scripture. And he went on to argue that those who would try to show that this is the sense of scripture when it is shown for positive reasons to be impossible, make our faith look foolish. So after explaining that Moses was talking to ignorant people when he wrote this passage of scripture, Aquinas goes on to offer an interpretation of the passage that's in accordance with the science of his day. Now the science of his day, of course, is outmoded, but all the same we can look at his method for trying to deal with these questions of the 
potential conflict between science and religion. Now, surprisingly, we find a similar method in Galileo. He thought that the surest way to resolve the controversy on the movement of the heavens would be to give a host of proofs that Copernicus's position is true and that the contrary cannot be maintained at all, since no true truth can contradict each other. So the truth of science and the truth of scripture must be harmonious. If this truth, the way the heavens are moving in Galileo's cosmology, if, if his theory is true, then it demands a reinterpretation of scripture. Galileo says, the Bible can never speak untruth whenever its true meaning is understood. But the meaning of the Bible is often not the unadorned grammatical meaning, he says, since the Bible often accommodates its language to the common people who are rude and unlearned. Therefore, in discussions of physical problems, we ought to begin not from the authority of scriptural passages, but from sense experience and necessary demonstrations. Since divine revelation and the phenomena of nature both proceed from the divine word, nothing physical which sense experience sets before our eyes or which necessary demonstrations prove to us ought to be called in question upon the testimony of biblical passages which may have some different meaning beneath the words. After all, he points out, quoting Cardinal Baronius, the intention of the Holy Spirit is to teach us how one goes to heaven, not how the heavens go. Not how the heavens move around, but how we can get to heaven. There are many times, he concludes, when reason should give way to faith and times when what has been accepted as part of faith should give way to reason. For from the above words, he says, I may deduce this doctrine, that in the books of the sages of the world, there are contained some physical truths which are soundly demonstrated and others that are merely stated. As to the former, it is the office of the wise divines, clerics, to show that they do not contradict the Holy Scripture. As to the propositions which are stated but not rigorously demonstrated, any contra anything contrary to the Bible involved by them must be held as undoubtedly false and should be proved so by every possible means. So what's interesting, Galileo says, don't just be indifferent when assertions of science contradict faith, if those assertions are not proved, but rather you should make it your business to disprove those assertions. Don't suspend judgment. Ironic, when at Galileo's time, his own theory of how the heavens move was not yet proved or demonstrated. It was simply one possibility. G.K. Chesterton concurs with the reasoning of Aquinas and so implicitly with Galileo and formulates his argument in his usual pithy way. He says, in the matter of the inspiration of scripture, Aquinas fixed first on the obvious fact, which was forgotten by four furious centuries of sectarian battle, that the meaning of scripture is very far from self-evident, and that we must often interpret it in the light of other truths. 
If a literal interpretation is really and flatly contradicted by an obvious fact, why then we can only say that the literal interpretation must be a false interpretation. But the fact must be really an obvious fact. And, unfortunately, 19th century scientists were just as ready to jump to the conclusion that any guess about nature was an obvious fact, as were 17th century sectarians to jump to the conclusion that any guess about scripture was the obvious interpretation. Thus, Chesterton continues, private theories about what the Bible ought to mean and premature theories about what the world ought to mean have met in loud and widely advertised controversy, especially in the Victorian time, and this clumsy collision of two very impatient forms of ignorance was known as the quarrel of science and religion. Okay, we can move on to St. John Paul II. Thomas Aquinas can be helpful to us here, so can John Paul II. He describes faith and reason, rather poetically, as two wings on which the human spirit rises to the contemplation of the truth. This is very practical poetry. We're meant to fly, and we can't fly well if we just have one wing. Contemplation of truth lies at the heart of our Christian life. Christ comes to bear witness to the truth and prayed that his followers might be consecrated in the truth. But how will we fulfill that sublime vocation? How will we rise to the contemplation of the truth if we don't learn, as it were, how to flap our wings? We might say that in his encyclical Faith and Reason, John Paul offers us a lesson in wing flapping, along with a bit of encouragement to get us out of the nest. John Paul sees that there are any number of factors that might keep us in the nest. Some philosophical wings, for instance, are not suitable matches for a wing of faith eclecticism, for example, which gathers ideas and principles at random, lacks, you might say, the precision placement of pinions needed for flying. Historicism, which sees truth only within the limits of a given historical context, lacks the transcendence that's essential for soaring. Scientism, we've already mentioned, which limits reality to the confines of scientific method, provides far too few feathers for flight. Rationalism, likewise, is incapable of flight since it refuses to recognize, let alone flap along with, the wing of faith since it accepts only what can be grasped or established by reason alone. Nihilism, another philosophical option, which rules out any possibility of meaning, you might say, that has plumage that's too superficial for flying, remaining blind to the deeper meaning of life and creation as revealed in the person of Christ. Fundamentally, John Paul maintains that any philosophy that abandons the study of being, 
the vital search for the ultimately real will fall into attitudes of skepticism or relativism that are incompatible with faith. If some philosophies are not compatible with faith, there are also some brands of faith incompatible with reason. Some believers, for instance, embrace a kind of traditionalism or fideism that does not allow them to recognize the importance of rational knowledge and philosophical discourse for understanding the faith, indeed for the very possibility of belief in God. If some believers shut themselves off from reason in this way, others allow themselves to be swayed uncritically by philosophical opinions and are overly eager to reinterpret the faith to fit whatever current popular philosophy is around. Well, in contrast to those kind of one-winged options, John Paul insists on the integration of faith and reason. Behind his insistence is the fundamental conviction, long part of the Catholic tradition, that since there is ultimately only one source of truth, the one who is truth itself, there can be no contradiction between the truth that reason discovers and which is revealed in faith. In this context, John Paul refers especially to Thomas Aquinas' conviction that whatever its source, truth is of the Holy Spirit. And he notes the freedom that this conviction gave Aquinas to seek truth wherever it might be found, even in the pagan philosophy of Aristotle. Reason can't close itself off from the truth of faith if it is to achieve its goal, which is the possession of ultimate truth. And faith can't ignore reason if it's to avoid devolving into a mere matter of feelings or myth or superstition. For John Paul, the integration of faith and reason is not just an intellectual nicety, but an essential element of authentic Christian life. John Paul uses St. Augustine to show the necessity of integrating faith and reason. According to Augustine, to believe is nothing other than to think with assent. Believers are also thinkers. In believing they think, and in thinking they believe. If faith does not think, it is nothing. Aquinas was also convinced that faith involves thinking as well as assent. He does not disparage the value of faith in relation to reason. In fact, in another of his little old lady arguments, he points out that none of the philosophers before the coming of Christ, with all their effort, was able to know as much about God and about what is necessary for eternal life as a little old lady, the Vetula, is able to know by faith after the coming of Christ. At the same time, he affirms the value of reflecting intellectually about what we believe. Otherwise, he says, we might find ourselves making correct statements, but with empty heads. If the ascent of faith requires thought, thought also requires assent if it is to be faith. To quote Augustine again, if there is no assent, there is no faith, for without assent one does not really believe. To believe only what reason can explain 
is not really to believe at all. If I believe what you tell me only when you tell me something I already know, I'm not really believing you at all. If I believe only the tenets of faith that I can rationally comprehend, I'm not really believing at all. Either one accepts all of the faith, or one has not yet really accepted any of it. When we reflect on our faith, when we use our reason to consider what we believe, we don't use reason to critique what we believe and decide whether it makes sense within the limits of what we humans can understand. Rather, we use our minds to plumb the depths of the mystery of what God has revealed. And since what God reveals is ultimately himself, we plumb the depths of the mystery of God. This is, what, this is one way in which, as Jesus says, we are to love the Lord your God with your whole heart and soul and mind and strength. Just as when you fall in love with someone, you want to know all about that person. So when we fall in love with God, we want to know all about God. We want to use all of our human powers, mind and soul, heart and intellect, to know God and to love him. What we believe does not depend on just what we can know, yet knowledge and faith work together. Our human reason is a powerful tool for knowing all the fruits of modern science with all its practical applications in medicine and technology are the products of reason. But reason must also recognize that it must be helped by faith if it is to discover, as the Pope says, horizons it cannot reach on its own. At the same time, we need the help of reason to penetrate the depths of our faith. And again, as John Paul says, as a work of critical reason in the light of faith, theology presupposes and requires, in all of its research, a reason formed and educated to concept and argument. Moreover, theology needs philosophy as a partner in dialogue in order to confirm the intelligibility and universal truth of its claims. Given the interrelation between faith and reason, John Paul wants to encourage all who seek after knowledge, whether through theology or philosophy or science, he first thanks theologians for their service to the church, urging them to pay special attention to the philosophical implications of the word of God and to be sure to reflect in their work all the speculative and practical breadth of science and theology. He admonishes philosophers not to set themselves goals that are too modest in their philosophizing, nor to abandon the passion for ultimate truth, the eagerness to, seek, to search for it, or the audacity to forge new paths in the search. At the same time, he reminds them that it is faith which stirs reason to move beyond all isolation and willingly to run risks so that it may attain whatever is beautiful, good, and true. Faith thus becomes the convinced and convincing advocate of reason. Finally, he argues, or he urges scientists to continue their efforts without ever abandoning abandoning the sapiential horizon within which their scientific and technological achievements are wedded to the philosophical 
and ethical values which are the distinctive and indelible mark of the human person. He reminds them that the search for truth, even when it concerns a finite reality of the world or of human being, is never-ending, but always points beyond to something higher than the immediate object of study, to the questions that give access to mystery. So finally we look at rising to the contemplation of the truth. Through centuries of philosophical and theological reflection, the church deepens its penetration of divine truth. John Paul explains this, quoting the Second Vatican Council. As the centuries succeed one another, the church constantly progresses towards the fullness of divine truth until the words of God reach their complete fulfillment in her. What happens historically in the encounter between faith and reason happens in the experience of every Christian. Historically, faith and reason interact, providing an ever deeper understanding of the truth. So it is for each of us. We begin with the word of God, and by rational reflection on it, we come to a deeper understanding. And then our, with our deeper understanding, we return to the word of God once more to discover still greater depths. It's the same dynamic that you see in the practice of Lectio Divina, if you're familiar with that way of praying, where we begin with Lectio, or reading the scripture, move to Meditatio, or meditation, then to Oratio, to prayer, and finally to contemplation. So one begins by reading the word of God in scripture, Lectio, and then one ponders it or thinks about it, meditatio, and then one prays about it, oratio, and finally one discovers not just something about the word, but one in some way encounters the word in contemplatio. One southern preacher describes this process more poetically in explaining his method for preparing a sermon. He says, first I reads myself full. Lexio. Then I thinks myself clear, meditatio. Then I praise myself hot, oratio. And then I cools down, <laughs> contemplatio. We might say that the church collectively and each Christian individually begins with the activity of circling from revelation to reasoning, theology to philosophy, faith and reason, and back again. Eventually, however, if the practice is effective, we move from circling to centering. We penetrate or touch the mystery at the heart of creation, or rather, that mystery touches us. Here we find the still point, the end of all our searching and we are touched with joy. As St. Augustine tells us, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you.